So when you flipped the on switch, did it immediately go on or? It did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have two separate battery systems or three for that matter. And I would drive until the first battery is low and then stop the vehicle and, and turn it off and then switch from one battery to another. Anytime I got over about 45 miles an hour, the vibration would just start getting too bad and I would have to back off. Hello and welcome to the next great car era a podcast by EV Tuners. I'm your host, Daniel Martin, and today I'm sitting down with Jimmy Underhill of EV Swap Conversions. Jimmy is a car enthusiast and has raced with both SCCA and NASA in Spec Miata. More recently, he's gotten into 4x4 driving and is now venturing into EV conversions, the result of which is an EV Swap Toyota Land Cruiser. For Jimmy, the driving experience, freedom, and advanced technology and engineering has been so fun, he recently launched a conversion company called EV Swap Conversions out of Denver. Before we dive in, please remember to like and subscribe on YouTube, leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, and follow us on Instagram. It helps a ton, and I really appreciate it. If you want to participate with the EV Tuners community even more, check out our Patreon page for all sorts of exclusive access. And now with that, enjoy all right well jimmy thanks for joining me today no problem thanks for having me of course how about a quick intro and uh background for folks who maybe are joining us for the first time okay my name is jimmy underhill i live here in denver colorado uh and i'm just like a car enthusiast i guess uh always been into cars since i was 16 and now I'm getting into EV conversions. And we're going to talk a bunch about it later, but behind you is one of your conversions. Yep. That's my Land Cruiser, my 96 Land Cruiser that I converted. And that's a picture out in Moab. Ah, that's so cool. And the logo, EV Swap, which is on the Land Cruiser, on your shirt. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So EV Swap is my business and uh, I'm going to specialize in conversions or uh, consulting service for uh, home-built EVs, things like that. And uh, I just thought it was cool. You know, everybody talks about LS swap or K swap or, uh, you know, name your swap. So why not EV swap? Heck yeah. Unlock some uh, additional power a lot of times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, man, it's it's... It's tough because there's so many entry points here. I mean, EV swapping used to be something that was for only the lightest of cars when it was first really popularized. When it first came on my map, it was like, you got a VW or an old classic Porsche, but now things have changed. I mean, a Land Cruiser is a huge car, heavy, uh, to be able to swap and, and you're running it and doing what it's built for. Yeah, definitely. Um, part of what's unlocked that capability is the modern EVs that we now have access to and uh, the technology has progressed a lot. Um, the batteries are lighter for more power. So um, it's all moving that direction. I love that. It's an exciting spot to be. Let's take just a little bit of a step back though um, from the EV and talk a bit about Denver and where you're located in the world. What's the car culture like there? Um, it's a pretty good car culture these days. Uh, when I was first getting into cars, 
oh, about 20 years ago, it was uh, not really that much. Um, like you'd see every once in a while a, a cool car on the street, but there wasn't a lot of like tuned cars like, uh, uh, you know, like the, the Japanese sports cars. And there was, of course, the guys that have like the big exhausts and, and that slam them to the ground. But there wasn't like the dedicated hardcore guys, you know, turbocharging their cars or um, taking them to the track. Um, the SCCA has always been big here, okay. like uh, sanctioned racing. But outside of that, the car culture was kind of mediocre. But in the last like five or 10 years, it's really kicked off. And um, there's tons and tons of car clubs now. Uh, there, I'm a member of a Toyota Land Cruiser, like four by four club. Um, there's Miata clubs, there's Corvette clubs, Porsche clubs, like any kind of car, there's a club for it. And um, yeah, the the scene has really picked up a lot in the last couple of years. That's so cool. What do you think changed? Uh, partly, it's a lot of people are moving here from other places. Um, Colorado at one point was like the number one state where people were moving to. Also, I think it's just kind of organically grown here. Uh, we have amazing mountain roads to drive on and mm -hmm. we've got a couple racetracks that have been built recently. So there's more places to take your car. Um, so I think a combination of those things. Tell me a bit more about those racetracks. Uh, we've got, uh, well, I guess the newest one is called high plains raceway and it's out East of Denver and it's, a uh, amazing. I think it's two and a half mile road course with uh, wow. bunch of a bunch of elevation up and down, um, fast corners, slow corners. And it's just like, oh, a world-class racetrack out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and um, we also have a, a racetrack down in Pueblo called Pueblo Motorsports Park. And that's also a two and some mile road course with good elevation changes. And uh, it also has a drag strip incorporated. Um, also, we've got Bandemir Raceway, which is a drag strip. It's world famous here um, in Morrison, Colorado, where I live, which is kind of cool. And uh, we also have Pikes Peak International Raceway, which for a while was kind of defunct. Um, NASCAR left and didn't come back to that track. It's an oval, but it has a, a roval, like a road course inside. And okay. that's that's picked up a lot for uh, like uh, time attack, they call it down there. Mm -hmm. And that's a really cool low pressure uh, low stakes competition event that you can just bring whatever you want there and go run it. Where does Pikes Peak hill climb factor in to all of those tracks? Is it attached to one of them or is it kind of its own thing? Yeah, it's its own thing. Um, and that's of course been going on forever and world-class event also. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's Pikes Peak. It's an amazing hill climb there up to 14,000 feet, uh, like no other. And it's really cool to see the electric vehicles dominating. Um, because the big thing with Pikes Peak is you start at about 5,000, maybe 6,000 feet elevation, and you go up to 14,000 feet. So you're gaining this huge amount of elevation. So you're constantly going up. You need tons of power. But the higher you go, the thinner the air is. So your, your engine makes less power at the top, sometimes 40, 50, 60% less than it would at the bottom. Um, and EV doesn't have that problem. And EV uh, maintains its full power all the way up, regardless of elevation. So um, it's, it's a definitely an interesting track. Uh, 
totally high stakes. <laughs> You're right there on the cliff's edge sometimes. And yeah. um, I've, I've been up there just in my personal car and it's, it's a little sketchy driving up there uh, faster than 25 miles an hour. So I really, I really appreciate how fast those guys go. Yeah, no kidding. The, uh, the elevation that reminds me of uh, a long time ago episode of the original Top Gear. They took a car into Atacama Desert in Chile, and it, they yeah. got enough elevation to where it just died. Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> that. A... They're climbing the volcano. Yeah, it's like, oh man, the air is awfully thin. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it makes a big difference. I I grew up driving like Miatas and Honda CRXs and things like that. That on a good day they got 100 horsepower and once you get them up into the mountains you're you're winding it out for all it's worth just to keep up with traffic sometimes <laughs> it's not like they get lighter as they go up in elevation either <laughs> no <laughs> um so how did you get into cars i love those old hondas and miatas it's really cool but what was sort of your entry into that yeah so when i was like 15 going on 16 getting my learner's permit i kind of wasn't really into cars i was like yeah it gets you from point a to b but this, there's a speed limit you can't go faster than that like what's the point in having a fast car and it didn't really click to me until my buddy took me for a ride in his uh, sob turbo mm. and as soon as that turbo kicked in like i was hooked it was over and i was into cars ever since yeah absolutely so do you go to did you do any track stuff or uh at that time or has that been later in life uh no back back then i was just kind of ruining her. i think i lost you there jimmy uh are you back oh uh, yeah it's telling me my internet's unstable hopefully it gets better i can hear you now all good okay you were saying when you were younger, you did uh, a little track yeah, or no? Uh, not really. I, you know, tw tweaked on my cars a little bit, mm -hmm. did basic maintenance and stuff, but um, I didn't really get into track stuff until uh, a little bit later when I started racing Spec Miata. Um, I got into Spec Miata pretty good, and I won the regional SCCA championship here in the Rocky Mountain region. And I wow. went to the runoffs and, uh, and so I was like into the, the wheel to wheel racing. That was just where I was at. And I tried to make a go of it. Uh, I raced professionally for Volkswagen in 2008 with the TDI cup. Um, maybe you've heard of the clean diesels and, uh, mm -hmm. that ended up teaching me that I, it probably wasn't going to be a good career for me. But it's something that I was addicted to, and it was going to be a part of my life. Sure. I mean, that sounds like a great achievement, even getting in those levels. Like, th that's far more driver skill than than many folks will ever achieve. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a uh, big part of that was I went to the Bondurant school, um, and they really taught me that I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> behind the wheel. And once you learn the fundamentals, you can really go a lot faster. That makes sense. The uh, in my case, it's the idiot behind the wheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly the the loose nut behind the wheel. <laughs> so, what about EVs then, um, as a specific kind of group grouping of cars? When did that come onto the map for you? I've always kind of been interested in them, 
just because they're like new and different. Mm. Uh, of course, back in the day, it was like a joke. Uh, they're glorified golf carts. Um, but then, you know, Tesla came onto the scene and they proved that the new technology that has improved leaps and bounds. And um, I've just always been into like RC cars ever since I was a little kid. Mm. And those are basically just EVs. Uh, and once, once I got into, well, I actually worked for uh, a couple of drone companies. I built and flew drones and uh, drones have the same brushless motors and lithium batteries. So I really learned about the electronics of it, the wiring, uh, the battery technology, and really applied it. And uh, I saw that there was a lot of potential for EVs. So yeah, it just something that's new and different. I've always been into all sorts of different kinds of cars, not just one type. So they, they intrigue me. That's really cool. The RC, the RC sort of connecting the dots, I think, I think makes a lot of sense. I wasn't really into RCs growing up, but I had a buddy who had uh, one later in life and I like would hang out with him and watch him, watch him tear. And it's like, those things are just ridiculously fast. Yeah. Yeah. They can be crazy fast and uh, instant torque, instant power. I had a couple of the gas, like the nitro RC cars, and those are kind of fun to play with and they're different, but the performance is just so much better with the electric ones. So um, it was kind of a no brainer to stick with electric. That's the paradigm. Yeah. So then let's talk, switch gears into, into the, the build behind you, the land cruiser. Mm -hmm. So Tell us a little bit more about kind of how you came up with that idea. What are the, some of the choices that you made? How how you decided parts to go into it? That sort of stuff. Yeah, so I wanted to do my first EV conversion. And this Land Cruiser is my very first one. And I didn't want to um, spend a ton of money. So I was looking for a vehicle to convert. And I was doing a bunch of research. And at the same time, I was into four-wheel drive off-roading in my gas-powered Land Cruiser. So I thought that it might be kind of cool to do an EV 4x4. Mm. Also, it kind of is a benefit of having a large vehicle that you have a lot of space to work with. When I was doing research, I'd see a lot of smaller car builds. Everybody immediately thinks, like you say, a small car, you're, you're lighter, uh, you have less aerodynamic drag, it's going to go further which is all true, but at the same time, you have less places to put your batteries. And when you are converting it, you're, everything's really tight. So you have to really prioritize your space. And, um, and sometimes that leads to compromises. So sure. I thought as, since it's my first vehicle, if I use a larger vehicle, I'll have more room to screw up basically. So I, I was just looking around and I wanted some vehicle that had solid axle, the solid front axle, because it's going to be like a dedicated off-road truck. So you just want to go straight for the best. And for people who don't know, uh, independent suspension just isn't as good as the old fashioned solid axle is off-road. Um, hmm. It's just the geometries and the way it flexes and stuff. So that was kind of my goal is to build a solid axle off-road truck. So I just looked around for one for sale. Um, 
and I found this truck here for a thousand bucks. And this was right in the middle of COVID. So it was before the market went crazy. And uh, I, yeah, I got it for a thousand bucks. The catch is it had no title. So I did some legal uh, finagling. I got it titled in my name and I started working on it. It had, or it has 325,000 miles on it. So it's been well used and the motor was leaking. It uh, was burning oil. It was leaking oil. The power steering is leaking. The automatic transmission was leaking. So it's just like a big gross mess. So I cleaned it all up and uh, uh, put some, uh, like a lift on it, some wheels and tires, and uh, basically replaced all the seats and cleaned the carpet, just made it nice, made it my own. And then I was looking at uh, EV components and the prices are like sky high. If you want to buy a brand new battery, yeah. it's just like tons and tons of money. So I ended up buying a used or a wrecked Nissan Leaf from the Copart auction, um, like an insurance auction. And I stripped out the Leaf. I took out the battery, the motor, the controller, and the wiring harness um, and the charger. And I had like a pile of my EV components. And I just kind of like looked at my truck, looked at my components and figured out where things wanted to live, figured out how to, where things are going to go uh, to make the most sense and started building it. Um, and that was 2020 uh, into 2021 is when I was building it. You make it sound so simple, but I don't <laughs> think it was that simple. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it is in some ways it is simpler than doing a, a gas engine swap because okay. you don't have the high pressure oil lines and you don't have as much heat to deal with or exhaust. So it really is kind of figure out where things fit. And then obviously you need to weld in brackets or mounts, um, cut things like cut the bodywork, the sheet metal, if it's in the way and, uh, run all the wiring. So it's kind of similar to an engine swap in some ways it's easier, some ways it's harder. When you were using the the wiring harness from the Leaf, like that's a very different sized car than the Land Cruiser. Did you have to like extend some of those connectors and and somehow, uh, or yeah. did it just work? Yeah, I had to extend some of the wires. Uh, like as you say, it's just more serve more real estate to fill. And uh, I used a controller called a Resolve EV controller, which allowed me to use all of the main components without having to have the brains out of the leaf. So that kind of simplified mm. the wiring a little bit. And um, part of my job before working on drones is is wiring, soldering, crimping, uh, running wires. So that is just comes naturally to me. And I was able to, to get it done. Um, I w by using all the stuff from the leaf, then you don't have to order stuff. You don't have to buy uh, plugs or or wires or something you and also you have a, a blueprint of how it's supposed to fit together that's true so when you flip the on switch did it immediately go on or it did yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it kind of shocked me but i tested it uh -oh. and the very first time i turned the key it all just worked and i pushed on the gas and the motor spun and it showed me the battery percentage and it just worked that's amazing yeah, it's a really good feeling, but um, yeah, that also just comes back to my days building drones where you really, if you're really OCD about all the little details, then when you power it up, 
it works. And with electronics, if you don't have it wired up, sometimes when you power it up, it'll go poof and you're back to stage one. So um, that's that was really critical uh, to get all that stuff right. Yeah, I think that that stress happens when any sort of rebuild. I remember uh, long, long ago when I was learning uh, and working on an eclipse, uh, I reassembled a long block on it and added in a bunch of go fast goodies. And that first turning of the key to see like, does it, did, did I get the camshafts oriented correctly? Is everything okay? Or is it going to go boom? Uh, yep. It's high stress. Yeah, it is. But it worked out well. And so now you're driving it. Is this your daily driver? Or no, you you said off-road only. Uh, well, it's my daily driver, but since it's only got a Nissan Leaf battery, my radius is only about 60 to 70 miles. Okay. So uh, I can't drive it everywhere, but I drive it as much as I can. And then when I am going to go off-road, I trailer it uh, to the trailhead. 60, 70 miles is still pretty good for a truck that size when the battery was built for a leaf yeah exactly yeah it's about half the range of what the leaf got okay what uh sort of horsepower are you or maybe i guess effective horsepower are, are you getting is it you know somewhat similar to the engine that was in it before more torquey well on paper it's a lot less but by the seat of the pants, it's about the same or a little bit better. So I use the basic or the original first gen Nissan Leaf, which is 100 horsepower or 80 kilowatts, and it makes about 200 foot pounds of torque. Okay. And the original gas engine made about 220 ish horsepower. So my electric motor has a roughly half, but because it doesn't have that automatic transmission, you're just like, as soon as you move your foot, you get response. Whereas with the old automatic, it's like there's a lot of power getting soaked up in the torque converter and the gear changes and all that power doesn't make it to the wheels. So no, not even close. So the leaf, the leaf motor has a gearbox built into it, right? And you're utilizing that and then that connects into your transfer case or how did um, you go about that? I'm not using the leaf gearbox. Oh, really? I, just, I separated it from the motor and I built my own adapter between the motor and my transfer case. Okay. And I used an additional reduction gear uh, that bolts onto my transfer case. It's called a black box. And so it's, it's fixed ratio 2.7 to one. And uh, that gives me the right amount of RPM per mile per hour. So that uh, it, it has good acceleration around town and a top speed of about 70 miles an hour. And then when I go off-road, I still have my original transfer case. So I can shift that down to low range. And then it's got like massive torque and really good control. Um, so when you go off-roading, it's it's better than a gas truck in just about every way except range. <laughs> That's what I say. It's It feels better. It's more responsive. It's more controllable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just more fun to drive, frankly. it's It's really great out there on the trails. You get better gas or get better range on the trail, though, potentially than around town because you're going slower. Is that correct? Uh, I thought that would be the case, but I actually I get slightly less efficiency. And that just huh. comes down to you're bouncing around on these rough roads and there's a lot of energy being used to 
to go up and over boulders that you can't necessarily regen. And uh, so I found that I get slightly less range off-road than on-road, but at the same time, uh, you can spend, you know, five or six hours out on the trail, no problem. Yeah, that's a good long time. Yeah. At that point, you you might be bumped around and ready for a break. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's good. It's a good compromise. How did you tackle uh, cooling and, and battery management? Is all that all from the stock LEAF system as well? Yeah, I used the BMS from the LEAF, which has uh, some temperature sensors on it. There's no heat management in the LEAF. It's basically just a, a box. Um, it's not even really air-cooled. It's just the way the leaf works is it's only got a hundred horsepower. So even if you're just foot to the floor, it's not generating a ton of heat in the battery. So the battery warms up and it cools down. And, uh, as long as it's not getting too hot, it's fine. And, um, really I've, I've not experienced it going above about 90 degrees, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is like actually perfect. That's where you want your lithium batteries to be, uh, so no cooling for the battery. I do have a water cooling loop for the motor, the inverter, and the charger. So when you're, the motor actually doesn't really, the motor and the inverter really don't generate heat. But when you're charging, when you're plugged in and charging, it does generate heat. That's kind of the time when it makes the most heat. Interesting. And did you have to fabricate that yourself after the fact? Uh, I, yeah, I used like a, um, a small radiator aftermarket and I, but I was able to utilize the electric cooling pump from the leaf and all of the leaf components have uh, fittings for cooling hose. So I just kind of extended that. I've got a big water cooling loop around the engine bay, basically that uh, cycles the water. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> The other question that that comes to mind is that gear reduction. Um, did was that your plan all along, or was that you know, are we hearing the end result of a lot of head scratching that you had to work out as part of this build? Uh, that was my plan all along. I knew that um, going back to my RC car days, I knew that gearing was going to be critical because if you don't have enough ratio, then it's going to be super sluggish. It might not even move. It might just, you know, kind of like not have enough torque to get moving. And if you have too low of gearing, then your top speed's going to be, you know, 30 miles an hour or something. So it's not going to be fast enough to drive around in traffic. So I did, before I even started the project, I figured out what ratio I would need. And I decided that, that between 2.5 to 1 and 3 to 1 was the ratio that I would need to find an adapter. So my black box, just luckily, it was built for uh, basically like Chevy V8 swaps into Land Cruisers. So it's a mm. product that's already out on the market and it had the perfect ratio, 2.7 to 1. So I, I narrowed in on that pretty quick. I was also looking at some other reduction gearboxes. There's one called a torque box, um, which is made for adding Nissan or a uh, electric motors like Tesla primarily to an old muscle car. Mm. So it has the right ratio to, to work with the differential in the rear end um, for that type of vehicle. I also looked at boat reduction gears because a lot of boats have a two to one or a three to one reduction. Uh, 
they call it a V drive. It, like the shaft comes in one way and then it comes out the like the same way. So it's like a V. Sure. And I I kind of was looking at those, but here in Colorado, like we don't have boat wrecking yards and stuff. There's not a lot of boats around. So it was just an idea that I had. But once I found the black box, I narrowed in on that, especially because it's specifically designed for my Land Cruiser. Yeah, that seems like the lottery right there. Yeah. And then I had to have a custom adapter machined between the motor and the black box with a drive shaft in between. And the first draft of that, basically, I did it all myself with just some angle irons or angle steel welding, you know, measuring with laser levels and things. And I had a, a drive shaft manufactured locally and it worked. I was able to go off-roading and test it and stuff, but I had a vibration. So anytime I got over about 45 miles an hour, the vibration would just start getting too bad and I would have to back off. So in version two, I had my buddy, um, Adam, he's got a company called ProSize Metalworks here in Colorado, and he's a CNC machinist. He's uh, by trade. And he was able to CNC, like he catted up the adapter um, on his computer, and then he was able to CNC all the parts. And with that thing, it's like mint. There's no vibrations. It's super smooth. And I can go all the way up to 70 miles an hour which the motor is spinning at about 11,000 RPM at that speed. So that's perfect now. It's it's really great uh, after I got that solved. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. And now if you were to do it again, you have those uh, the CNC blueprints to have him spit out a few more perhaps. Yeah, exactly. What about other lessons learned? Was there anything that surprised you as you started cracking this open and, and going into such a build as this? Uh, one thing was I thought my range would be a little bit better than it is. Now looking back, the range is about right. Um, you can't really get around to lots of physics and it's a big truck and it's a big, you know, square face. It's not aerodynamic. So the range and it's on big tires too. So the range is about what it should be but i just i thought when i was sketching it that i would get slightly better range um other than that i've kind of been pleasantly surprised it just kind of works i've never had a breakdown or a problem in that regard um i guess i could say that some of the things i overlooked was maybe the power steering um since it's a, a truck with a solid axle i needed a, a hydraulic power steering so I ended up having to use a Volvo power steering pump, um, which just runs off 12 volts. And that actually uses quite a bit more uh, energy than I expected. So uh, it runs about 400 watts, about like all the time that the car is switched on, it's running. So mm. that's kind of an unforeseen uh, parasitic draw. What about any other powered things? Does it still have AC? Does it have power windows and anything like that? Radio? It has radio and power wind windows and a sunroof, but no AC and it has no heater. <laughs> so uh, right now I just kind of drive it on sunny days when it's nice because air conditioning is and heater for that matter is um, something that you can solve with an electric car but it's just going to draw more out of the battery. So 
here in Colorado, we got pretty mild weather, especially up in the mountains. It's like, you know, 70 degrees and sunny. So it's perfect. So, uh, and also it's not like my primary vehicle, so I don't have to sweat in traffic every single day, but, uh, that would be kind of something I'm thinking of adding down the road. Maybe if I add more batteries, I'll think about adding that. Sure. Add more batteries could be cool. Yeah. Yeah. My plan is to add more batteries somehow. I've got a lot of space for it too, where the gas tank used to be mm-hmm. and where the exhaust used to be. There's a ton of room underneath. Would you basically wire them up in parallel to the existing battery or do you have a different idea on on how to add a new a new bank um i i haven't fully thought it all the way through and there's some limitations since i'm using the nissan bms and i'm using this aftermarket controller they're kind of specific about how they work so i don't think that it would be possible to run them both in parallel I think what I would have to do is have two separate battery systems or three for that matter. And I would drive until the first battery is low and then stop the vehicle and and turn it off and then switch from one battery to another. Basically all I have to do is switch the BMS uh, communications because the battery itself already has the high voltage contactors. So switch the BMS over and then turn the key on and start driving on the next battery. Okay. Um, so they would, they would be independent in that way and you'd have to stop to switch them. Um, but I think it would work. So I'm talking to the designer of the controller to see um, kind of, we've kind of got a conversation going back and forth because that's something he's interested in too. The biggest problem with the Nissan leaf is it's got a small battery. Right. Yeah, that could be a really elegant solution, though, especially in an off-road environment. It's not that tough to to pull off for a second yeah. or to just stop. Yeah, exactly. And and also, you could have one battery to get you from the ha- your house to the trailhead and back, and you have the other battery to drive on the trail so that you always have you know a reserve, so to speak, to get you back home. Sure, that makes sense. Speaking of being on the trail what is it like what is the reactions of other people when you meet them out there and i mean land cruisers are charismatic and everyone likes them and you got the deal of the century by the way i can't (laughs) believe that was for a grand but uh you know they're probably folks that that see that and they go what is an ev swap and then get very surprised that it's actually an electric land cruiser paint paint a picture of what that's like yeah i i get a lot like pretty much 99% 99% positive. I can only remember maybe two or three times where somebody was like, you know, really upset or uh, critical of it. Um, one person said it was sacrilege, but <laughs> really everybody just thinks it's cool. And mostly they say, oh, sweet Land Cruiser. And then as a secondary thing, they realize it's electric. Um, I've got these stickers on it that say, you know, EV swap. And I got one on my windscreen that says 100% electric. And a lot of people think it's a joke. They think that I just put those stickers on to as a joke. And I say, oh, no, it's electric. And I pop the hood and I show it to them and they think it's really cool. Um, and every person that I've let drive it uh, comes back loving it because it drives so good. That's really cool. I think that the reputation or or the, 
what people often think is that there's a lot of resistance and maybe there is online, but I mean, in the real world, people get excited about cars because at the end of the day, we're all car people. Yeah. And the, you go to uh Toyota meet and there's 30 land cruisers there and uh, you know, people gravitate towards the unique ones. So if there's like a diesel import from Japan, people will gravitate to that. If there's, you know, somebody LS swapped their land cruiser, people will go check that one out. And so mine's the, the only electric one. So people come, they, they see it and they, they really want to dive into it and ask a bunch of questions and figure out works. So yeah, like I said, it's, overwhelmingly positive that's so cool and that kind of ties into into ev swap denver your company so are you going to focus on land cruisers or is it actually be going to be a lot broader than that well i'd, I'd work on any vehicle um right now i i'm kind of sticking with land cruisers just because it's what i know and i'm in the community and i just picked up an fj40 which is going to be my next build. So oh, cool. it, it kind of just worked out naturally that I'm into land cruisers. But I think that with an EV swap, you can do any kind of car. And as long as that car's got some personality to it or good looks or some reason why you want to keep it on the road, uh, it's going to make a good EV conversion. Um, maybe some cars are, are better than others, like uh like a ferrari you want that ferrari v8 sound you want the noise so maybe not a car like that but uh a japanese sports car or a, a classic muscle car um, or an off-road truck i think really uh the sky's the limit that's that's why I, i'm i started this company is so i can work on all sorts of different cars and and build cool unique cars i love that and we're going to be seeing some cool, unique cars here uh, in the next, I guess, a little over a week because yeah. that state of charge, the custom build conference coming up and uh, I'm going to be there. You're going to be there, right? Yep, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. We'll have to uh, we'll have to carve out some time and do a deep dive uh, video of of the Land Cruiser and, and actually get a tour of it. Um so people can sure. see what we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. And you're welcome to take it for a drive too, if you want. I will take you up on that, at least around a parking lot. Yeah, <laughs> or out on the street, wherever. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Last question that I have, um, it really is around other folks who might be interested in doing this. I think it can kind of seem overwhelming, intimidating, um, do you have any advice or words for, of wisdom for people who are excited about electric cars, interested in building them, driving them, just becoming involved in kind of this growing momentum and car culture? Uh, yeah, I'd say um, do a lot of research, figure out what people are doing that works and what people are doing that that's not working so well. And um, you're going to have to take a plunge and pull that gas engine out and uh, the fuel lines and the exhaust. And, and you're going to have to uh, commit that it's going to be an electric car. But I think once you get past that hurdle, it's going to, you're going to be really happy with it. And um, it's going to be a great car to drive too. So yeah, you're going to have to uh, get the courage to, 
pull apart your car, which means maybe you want another vehicle, a project vehicle that's you buy dedicated to this purpose versus uh, your daily driver. Oh yeah. I think most people have made that mistake as, as uh, at least maybe first or second cars. I know I did thinking that I could build and work on my daily driver led to so many late nights and busted knuckles. Uh, the, it's 2 AM and I need this to work because I got to go to work in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. No fun. No fun. Yeah. And also I'd say pick a good car, like a cool car. Uh, you don't want to like swap a uh, uh, Toyota Corolla or something like that. You want a car that has some soul and some good looks to it. Um, that's that would uh, that's what I would say. It's good advice. All right, Jimmy. Well, I, with that, I think we can wrap up. And uh, thank you so much for your time. We covered a ton. I learned a lot. I really appreciate you sharing. No problem. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Okay. See ya. Bye.